0: Hello, my friends. This is Bishop Campbell welcoming you again to a short meditation on the theme of living the Catholic life. This past Sunday's scripture readings for Mass are taken from a very important part of the Gospel of Matthew and from Ezekiel. In Matthew's Gospel, there are three chapters which are often referred to as the chapters on the Church. First of all, because it is the only place in any of the Gospels where the word church is actually used. And it deals with how the followers of Jesus Christ, as a community of believers, live and act. And I would encourage you to read all three of those Gospels, because they bring up some extraordinary topics and ideas about what the church is and how it should live by telling about how, in fact, we express the life of Jesus Christ. In chapter 16, we have that extraordinary uh, occasion when Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them, who do you think that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they offer various uh, conclusions, a prophet, the Messiah, and whatnot. But then he turns to them and he said, But you, who do you say that I am? And it is Peter who answers for the apostles and saying, You are, you are Jesus the Christ, the Holy One of God. And, of course, with this declaration, our Lord uh, tells Peter that upon that rock, that is the name Peter, He's going to build his church, and the gates uh, of hell will not prevail against it. But then something very curious happens. Uh, Jesus follows this gift uh, of authority by the prediction of his passion, suffering, death, and resurrection. And Peter protests, saying, God forbid that you would, this would happen to you. And Jesus turns on Peter and says, get you behind me, Satan. You are thinking as man, not as God thinks. And in fact, Peter, to whom this great authority was given, is called a devil. Get thee behind me, Satan, our Lord says. Obviously, Peter had to learn a little more before he actually became the leader of the community. But then, immediately after this, Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, and the glory of God flowing through Jesus becomes an experience also which lies at at the heart of, uh, of the church. Jesus follows this by talking about true discipleship. But then he comes to talk about sin and forgiveness. It is an extraordinary part of this this portion of the Gospel of Matthew because he begins by talking about the matter of temptation and about the problem of sin and how to deal with them. But he says, you know, temptations will come our way but woe to him by whom they come. It reminds me of a verse from a poem by John Donne, which is a poem begging forgiveness for for sin, for the overcoming of original sin, the overcoming of personal sins. But the verse that I think about, the poet says, and will you forgive me when i become when my sin becomes the door for others to sin <clears throat> and in a way for jesus this is one of the most serious sins and he said it is better for a person to have a millstone tied around his neck and tossed into the sea than to cause scandal to one of the little ones to become a door for another's misunderstanding or sin. And obviously, our Lord understood that sin can be disruptive not only of a person's individual well-being, but of a whole community. So how, then, does the Church deal with sin? And Jesus outlines the way in which this is to be handled. And it's a three-stager. He said, first, an individual who knows of another individual's sin must come to him privately and admonish him. If that doesn't work, bring two or three other witnesses now, the two or three other witnesses were required by Jewish law to give uh, testimony. If this doesn't work, bring him to the whole church. And if this does not turn the sinner away from his sin, then treat him as a, te- a, tax, pla- pay or a tax collector or a Gentile. That is, throw him out of the community. This seems to be quite severe. But sometimes, you know, we have uh, an image of Christ that is only partial. And we sometimes are shocked by what Christ actually says, and we have to identify the whole Christ in order to understand him. But immediately after talking about how to deal with sin, Jesus tells uh, or gives an answer to Peter who asks, well, how many times should I forgive another one? Seven times? And our Lord says, no, I say 70 times, seven times. So he ends with the power of forgiveness. But forgiveness cannot become operative without contrition. So we turn to the passage from Ezekiel, which is the first reading for Mass on that Sunday, and we read something that should stir us uh, to consider and and to meditate on. It begins with an understanding of how critical it is to convert from sin. We have this lasting moment on, on earth, We're given the great gift of time in order that we might develop as human persons, come to understand our destiny, and not only to serve God in this life, but to be forever happy with him in the end. And any impediment to this, anything that might cause us to stumble, anything that turns us from God, is very critical and must be addressed. Ezekiel, though, talks about how important it is for us to be concerned with another's hearing the way or leaving the pathway ezekiel has a message from god saying i'm appointing you the watchman and if you see another sinning and you you work with him encourage him to turn from his sin but yet he may uh, in uh, continue It no longer is your responsibility, but his alone. If he turns from sin, then in fact you are uh, saving another, uh, helping to save another soul, and therefore should rejoice. But if you do not call another to a recognition of erring or uh, sinning, and the person dies in sin, then you will be responsible yourself. Now, I think this begins with an understanding of how sin affects others and the whole community. But it also awakens us all to the responsibility to what, after all, is a spiritual work of mercy to admonish the sinner, to call the sinner away from sin. Now, admonition may seem like too harsh a word today. In fact, in the catechism of the Catholic Church, it, uh, the word is no longer admonition, but instruction. And that, that it sounds a little more palatable, I suppose. But the admonition of the sinner has to be rooted in the love of that person. The primacy of charity for the other must be understood as the beginning of the admonition. And it is calling that other to remember his dignity and his destiny. We are told even in the most severe punishment of the church, that is excommunication, it is always seen as a form of education. And uh, it is a way of allowing, hopefully, a person to turn, and we are to offer prayers that a heart be turned. We do not admonish a sinner to declare our own self-righteousness or our claim of power over that person. Indeed, if this would be the uh, turning of our concern for sin, we would be in trouble. Because our Lord does warn us, you should not admit, uh, you know, admonish another person without first removing the plank in your eye. And it is only the consideration of our own need for forgiveness and mercy that allows us, out of a love for another, to be concerned about how sin is going to affect others, either by example or by disruption. But it's a very interesting consideration. But remember that the last word Jesus spoke on this issue was the necessity to forgive. And isn't that at the heart of our Lord's Prayer, to be to forgive others as we are forgiven. And so, in fact, The readings are a very happy occasion when we realize not only our responsibility, but our recognition that all conversion, even of others, begins with our own conversion. And the example of our life is the most powerful way to admonish another.